This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Hey, that goes along with Proverbs because um, Proverbs is kind of about relearning how to live in the aftermath of the, of the fall of sin, entering the world. And we have to unlearn the ways of the world and, 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 and relearn the way that God purposed us to live, to flourish and to image his glory. That's what Proverbs is, is really about. It teaches us the way of wisdom in all kinds of areas of life. And so for the past few weeks, we've been looking at some of those ways. And so today we're going to look at two more of them um, today. We're talking today about stewards and sluggards. And so these are characters that we see in Proverbs that just kind of come up again and again throughout the book. And it's very practical. Um, it's Work is part of our life, whether we work outside the home or not, um, whether we're in the workforce yet or not, you know, even if you're a student, um, you've got work to do. If you're retired, okay, you still have meaningful labor to contribute for the glory of God. And so um, we're talking today about work. We're talking about handling money. I mean, these are both things that are just um, incredible, incredibly practical. It's it's where we live and we want to glorify God in them. And so let's pray together before we, we begin. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thanks for these precious kids. Thanks for all you're doing in the life of our church. Thank you for our, our children's ministries and our student ministries here. Thank you so much for, for Grayson who was baptized earlier in our service. And we pray your, your formation upon him as he follows you as your disciple. And Lord, as we seek to follow you as disciples, we want to do that in every area of our lives. And so we pray that you would show us more about how to do that now through your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you noticed that some people in life uh, just kind of drain you and others replenish you? There's some people who after you kind of, you're around them for a while, you, you leave their presence and you kind of, you feel like something's sort of taken out of you and uh, you feel a little bit drained, like you need to be replenished. And then there are other people in your life when you're around them, I mean, you, you, you emerge from time spent with them sort of feeling refreshed, feeling replenished. Proverbs talks about both kinds of people. The sluggard who is one of the characters that we meet in Proverbs, is very much a drainer, a taker. Stewards are, are very much replenishers and givers. Let's talk about both of them today. First of all, meet the sluggard. <laughs> Proverbs uses a lot of humor, and it uses a whole lot of humor in talking about the, the character that it refers to as the sluggard. What's a sluggard? Ray Ortland says this. What is a sluggard? Think of the way syrup 
oozes slowly out of a bottle when it is cold. That's the sluggard. Sluggish and slow and hesitant when he should be decisive, active, forthright. His life motto is, don't rush me. He is lazy, constantly making the soft choice, losing one opportunity after another, after another, after another, day by day, moment by moment, until he lies there helpless in his wasted life. There are scores of verses in Proverbs that talk about the sluggard. We're going to look at a few of them this morning. First of all, 6, 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now here, the image that is used is from nature. He says, think about the ant. So ants don't need a lot of supervision. They don't have... Others that are standing around them, I presume things are okay, so we're going to keep going. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm told we're fine. We're good. Uh, so, okay. Sluggards. Right. Okay. Yeah. Ants. Okay. All right. So, he uses this image from nature. He says, think about an ant. Okay, the ants are diligent. They, they prepare and they gather in season, and they take initiative to do so. They don't have others that have to stand around them and force them to do it. No, they are initiative-taking. They just diligently do these things, much unlike the sluggard. Now, kind of, he uses this image here from nature, from creation. And speaking of creation, it's kind of important to sort of think about a, the theology of, of work from the Bible. So work was something that God introduced into creation before sin entered the world. Some people think of work as a, as a punishment for sin. It's not. Before sin ever came into the world, God told Adam and Eve to work the garden and to keep it and to have dominion over the rest of creation. So what does it tell us that work was a part of life in a perfect world. It means that, that God has designed us so that, that meaningful labor is a part of flourishing as human beings. It's not a punishment. It's, it's part of, we, we are more happy and fulfilled in life when we are stretched by productive labor, again, whether that takes place in the workforce or with the busy 
mom at home or with a student that is diligently applying uh, their whole selves to what they're doing or a retired person who is, is serving in the context of their, their church and community and just making a difference in missions or, or, or whatever. The point is that we are more fulfilled when we are stretched by productive labor, okay? Um, Colossians chapter three, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Let's look at another passage on the sluggard. 24, 30 through 34. I pass by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I considered, I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now notice here that one of the results of laziness is poverty. But Proverbs is also very careful to note that not everybody who is poor is poor because they are lazy. There are many, many people in this world who are poor through no fault of their own. And those people are to be helped by us. And Proverbs is incredibly clear about that as well. 14, 21, and 31. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. But the Bible is very clear that we are not to enable sluggards. We're not loving them well if we enable them to be sluggards. In the early church, as generous and as compassionate as the early Christians were with people, they were very clear that they would not enable people to be sluggards. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 10 through 12, for even when we were with you, we would give you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Let's look at five characteristics of the sluggard in Proverbs. First of all, unreliable, unreliable. 10, 26, <laughs> like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. You might not want to delegate to this person. Unreliable. Second, all talk, no action. 14, 23, in all toil there is profit but mere talk tends only to poverty. Sluggards 
love to talk about all the grand plans that they're going to do someday. <laughs> but someday never comes. Third, excuses, excuses. 22, 13, and here we really see the humor of Proverbs coming out. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. In other words, sluggards are constantly coming up with lame or sometimes preposterous excuses for their procrastination and their inaction. Fourth, not teachable. Not teachable. 26, 14 through 16. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. And here it is in verse 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. In fact, one of the reasons that sluggards are sluggards is because they're not teachable. They're too busy talking to listen to wise counsel. And so they think they have all the answers. Legends in their own minds. Finally, takers, not givers. Sluggards are takers, not givers. 21, 25, and 26. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. Sluggards, takers, stewards are givers. The righteous gives and does not hold back, and that brings us to the steward. Let's meet the steward. This is who we want to be. 1 Corinthians 4 Two. The Bible says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So a steward is a manager, not an owner. And part of being a disciple of Jesus is learning that we are not owners anymore. That we are bought at a price, the precious blood of Jesus. And that we belong to him. And that everything that we have belongs to him. Including our wallets. And we are entrusted by him to faithfully manage the resources that he's given. We're to faithfully steward the time that we have been given. We've got this one brief life to make a difference. We're to faithfully steward the, the talents, and, and by this I would include our spiritual gifts as well, and the ways that, that God, the experiences that God has given us, the abilities that God has given us, these things are not to be dormant. They are to be leveraged for the glory of God and for the strengthening of the local church. We're not to remain on the sidelines with, with our talents and our, 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 our spiritual gifts. 
God has gifted each of us with, with, with gifts and abilities and experiences to bless other people and build up the body of Christ. We're to be using them. That's faithful stewardship of, of, our, of our talents. But then we're to be faithful stewards of treasure, of, our, of money. The money that God has given to us. And Proverbs talks an awful lot about this kind of stewardship. Proverbs is, is filled with, with references to, to the handling of, of money. And what Proverbs says about stewarding money should be set within the context of what the whole of Scripture teaches about being a faithful steward of finances. What does the Bible teach as a whole? Tithing is taught in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was required of even the poorest Israelite in the Old Testament. Jesus personally reaffirms the practice of tithing in the New Testament as what is proper for God's people. A tithe means a tenth, if you're, if you're new to that term. And it's not to be thought of as the ceiling of our giving, but as the floor of our giving, as a baseline. As, as, as discipleship, a, a, a baseline of discipleship. Discipleship 101, a foundation that we build from. Ray Ortland says this, let's not think of tithing as heroic high-level commitment. Tithing is entry-level obedience, and then we go from there. Are you tithing? What is tithing? A tithe is the first item in a Christian's monthly budget, the first check we write, 10% of our gross income. And that first check goes to the cause of Christ. Something comes first in our budgets. Do we really want to say to our Lord, I'll fit you in if I can? No, we don't want to say that to our Lord because to say that to him would, would be to engage in robbing him. Malachi 3 Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. I am so thankful for godly parents who taught me this and lived it. My parents <clears throat> became believers as a young couple 
young married couple. Um, finances were a struggle for them at that point in their lives. But they, they became part of the church family. They heard people talking about tithing, and they just said, you know what? We don't know how we're going to make all this work, but we know that God does. And, 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 and if this is what obedience looks like, if this is what the Bible teaches, that's just what we're going to do. And we're going to trust that we can't outgive God. And they obeyed. It's obedience. It's trust. Trust and obey. And they just said, we're going to obey and we're going to trust God that he's going to bless our obedience. And that's what they did. And they saw this text fleshed out beautifully in their lives. And they taught it to their kids. They taught it to this kid. I'm so thankful. This is not something that was ever questioned in the home that I grew up in. And it's not something that's questioned in the Hayes home today. And just to make this really personal and practical, I'll share with you, okay, this is, this is our experience. This has been our journey in this area of our lives. Melissa grew up in a home like this as well, and so this is not something that was just ever questioned in our marriage. But our practice has always been to to give that tithe for us a little more than 10% of our gross income. Our tithe goes to our, our church budget. We give offerings for our building and for Lottie Moon and things like that that are over and above our tithe. But our tithe goes automatically to the budget of our church because we believe that biblically Jesus is building his church, that Jesus loves the church so much that he gave himself for it, that he loves the church that he died for, that he's building his church. And so we believe that the local church comes first. We do some giving to you know, parachurch ministries and things like that. We have offerings that are over and above our tithe. But listen, our tithe goes automatically to our local church budget. And listen, in our case at First Baptist, we have an incredibly diverse church budget. A good chunk of it goes to touch the last, the least, and the lost who have little or no access to the gospel overseas. Sends and supports missionaries and blesses countless numbers of souls that are in desperate need of the gospel, in desperate economic need, and all kinds of needs. So a good chunk of our budget goes directly into missions, international missions. It, it, it's, it, it go, a good chunk of it goes to plant churches in North America in places that are especially needy of the gospel. A good chunk of it goes to bless ministries in our local community and to sustain the overall ministry of our church family. It is a good, very diverse budget. And so our tithe goes to that. In our case, we have it, and our church has made it very easy to do this 
it's automatically withdrawn so that we don't have to even mess with it. It just automatically comes out and goes into our church budget. I know some of you still love to write checks for your tithe. That's great. However, it works for you. In our lifestyle, the automatic withdrawal just works best. And we can know that any Sunday, wherever we are in the world, we can be traveling or whatever, okay, our church, our local church can count on our tithe uh, coming into our budget. And that, that's immensely helpful in any budget to, to know something like that. It, it, but, but listen, it's automatic in another way as well. Not just that it comes out automatically, but it's automatic in the sense that this is not something that is up for discussion or debate in our family. Listen, we, we talk and pray about an awful lot of things in our lives and decisions that we make. We don't have to pray about this. This is obedience. We don't have to pray about whether or not we're going to carry out the Great Commission. Carrying out the Great Commission is obedience. Tithing is obedience. It, it's, it's, a, it's the command of God. And so, like, this is not something that Melissa and I have to sort of, you know, wring our hands about or just kind of wonder about. I mean, this is automatic. And it, and, and it doesn't matter what else is happening in our lives. It doesn't matter what, what, el- what other circumstances are going on. One child in college, two more on the way to college. Do we have all of the answers as to how all of this is going to fit for us in the years ahead? No, but God does. And he has always been faithful. And he will be faithful. And so we're, we're, we're just going to trust God and we just, we just obey. This is done. This is automatic, okay? Our, our tithe, right? And then, you know, there are things that, offerings that are, that are beyond that. If, you're, if your church is engaged in a building program like ours is, then we made a commitment back when we first uh, began our building projects. We made a, we made a three-year commitment. Um, and so at the end of that, we just continued uh, with, with that because we still have the need here to pay for our building. And so <clears throat> we, we have that. We arranged for that too to automatically come out because we know it's something that that the church uh, counts on to make that payment to our building fund. And then for things like Body Moon or other special offerings that we have, we write checks. That's what we do. Now, there are a lot of things in my life that I would do differently if I could go back in time. <laughs> There's a lot of things in my life that I I regret. But I want to tell you something, folks. I don't regret one penny that I have given to Jesus. Not one. I don't regret a penny that I have given for my Savior and my King who loved me and gave himself for me. And I delight in honoring him and giving to the advance of his kingdom. Five characteristics of stewards. First of all, stewards honor God. The steward honors God. Three, nine, and ten. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting 
with wine. You put God first in your finances and you watch him go to work on your behalf in all kinds of ways that are beyond all you could ask or imagine. Second, the steward trusts God. Proverbs 11 24 and 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Verse 24 talks about withholding what we should give. The reason that the reason that we withhold what we should give is because we don't believe God. This comes down to trust, it really does. If we believed that we could not outgive God, if we believed that God would provide for us, friends, we would give and give freely. We can talk about how much we believe the Bible until cows come home, but do you know how much of the Bible you believe? the part that you do. Jesus says in Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Do you believe Jesus? Third, The steward is not rushing after riches. 13.11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Do you remember our friend, the ant? (laughs) Ants are not in a hurry. They're just diligent. They're not frantic. They're just diligent over the long haul. God blesses that. A 21.5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. 28.22. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Now note here the link between being in a frantic rush after wealth and, and, and a lack of stewardship. The stingy man hastens after wealth. He's stingy, in other words, he doesn't wanna give because he is too busy accumulating. And his reasoning is that if I give less, I will have more. Lie, lie. Fourth, the steward loves God, not money. First Timothy six, nine and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And Proverbs talks about those, those, those painful, painful, Piercing and impaling ourselves 
because of a love of money, 15, 16, and 17. Better is a little with fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. In other words, you can gain the whole world and lose your soul. Destroy relationships, your family with the Lord. Fifth, stewards look to the gospel. The stewards, a steward looks to the gospel. Second Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Ortland says, how does Paul motivate for generosity? He does not appeal to our emotions with sob stories. He shows us Jesus, our savior was rich with heaven but he gave it up and came down into our poverty so that we might become rich with him forever. That is his wisdom. It is true wisdom and it works. Jesus was raised by the Father with a name that is above every name. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus, looking to the gospel, looking to the example of our Savior who loved us and gave himself for us, who so, to, to you who so loved the world that you gave your son. Thanks be to you for your inexpressible gift. And so Lord, having experienced your love, Lord, would you make us lovers of you, lovers of others. And we know that love is not just about words, it's about action and truth and one of the, way that we, one of the ways that we, we, we do the truth is through our giving. Lord, make us faithful stewards of our time, our talents, our treasure to the glory of your name. We pray it in the name of Jesus, amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about knowing more about him, about following him. We saw someone follow him in obedience and believer's baptism earlier in the service. If you're here and you say, I, I, I believed on Jesus, I need to follow through with baptism, which is a biblical command, we would love to come alongside you, set a date for that to happen. Our pastors are gonna be here at the front. If, you've got, if you need to talk to us now or after the service, listen, we are here for you. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust 
in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.